Welcome to Talking History. I'm Cassie Cooper. I'll be your host on the show. This podcast will cover United States history from the post-Civil War era during westward expansion to the modern era. We'll talk about the political, social, and economic developments that have helped to shape the United States into what it is today. We will analyze the many achievements and mistakes through a historic lens to better understand the events as they occurred and see how they shape our world today. Here come the Roaring Twenties, and it's only appropriate that this seismic change that occurs during the Twenties in our culture, in the young, in music, literature, artistic expression, all these things are going to begin with a presidency that is filled with scandal, mystery, the Hope Diamond, and many tryst with lovers. That's right, a return to normalcy and the presidency of Warren G. Harding. Let me quote from Warren Harding here, a campaign speech. America's present need is not heroics, but healing, not nostrums, but normalcy, no revolution, but restoration, not submergence in internationality, but sustainment and triumphant nationality. So, what is his normalcy? Well, by 1920, American society is recovering from World War I, from the Spanish flu epidemic, from the financial doldrums, of a depression. Americans are weary. They're tired. And they're starting to look back on periods of time, such as the Gilded Age, as simpler. The good old days. Having forgotten, obviously, the troubles they endured, fighting for workers' rights, and things like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. They're tired of going out to save the world from its problems. Problems that they don't think they have anything to do with. They want to return to isolationism. We do not want to be on the global stage anymore. And the person to bring them there is a plain, nice guy from Marion, Ohio. Harding had been a newspaper man. Buying his first newspaper at the age of 19 for $300. Sought after by many women in his city because he created a striking image, he ends up marrying an older woman, Florence. An older woman who already had a child, had already been married and divorced. So obviously he did not care as much about the social mores of the time. So somewhat progressive in that. However, he also carried on affairs with women like Carrie Phillips, a German sympathizer and later blackmails, (laughs) and Nan Britton, with whom he had a love child. As a political agent. He had been rather nondescript as he was a senator. Then in 1920, he decides to run for president as a dark horse candidate. No one is thinking, oh yeah, Warren G. Harding, that's our man. It's only on the ninth ballot at the Republican convention that they decide on him because he is so bland that no one has any issues with him. And they assume he'll just do what he's told. He wins. And while he's great with the press, his affairs never come to light. 
He is the first president to make regular use of the new technology of radio. And he's bringing an end, hopefully, to the social changes that we've seen because of the Great Migration, because of suffrage, prohibition, and the rising xenophobia of the American people. On a side note, there's a great story that his wife, who was good friends with the Washington Post owner, Ned McLean, who owned the Hope Diamond. Hope Diamond is one of the largest diamonds in the world. Supposedly, it kills all who own it because it was stolen from a statue of the Hindu goddess Sita. And it does have a history of owners such as Marie Antoinette who met bad ends. His wife goes with Ned McLean's wife to meet her friend, Madame Marsha. Madame Marsha says she will tell the future. And Florence finds that the future is, if nominated, Harding will win, but die in office. Later, when the press interviews Florence, all she could see for her husband, she says, was that if he won, tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. Well, and as I said, he won. <laughs> and it isn't long before scandals come home to roost. He was fond of gambling, drinking, womanizing. He showed poor judgment in his cabinet, cabinet selections, pretty much just bringing all of his good old boy friends from Ohio, what became known as the Ohio Gang. He focused primarily on rolling back the reforms of the progressive era and shrinking government, pretty much as a puppet of the old guard conservative GOP. About the main thing we get from him in office on the foreign affairs and dealing with the lingering effects of the war are the 1922 Fordney McCumber Tariff, which raises tariffs on imports to protect U.S. businesses, and in the long run makes it much harder for our allies to pay us back. However, his take on domestic issues, his philosophy and key philosophy usually of the GOP is low taxes, lessen the role of government and business, right? Go back to those laissez-faire government policies, right? Hands off of business and hands off of society. So he's got those corrupt cronies that he's brought into his cabinet. And really, he doesn't have a deep understanding of political issues. These guys that he places in charge are his poker-playing buddies. In fact, most of the things were, most of the decisions of his government were made in a room filled with alcohol, gambling, and prostitution. And if the American public knew this, I'm not sure they would have been happy with their president and his form of normalcy. These cabinet members took advantage of Harding's lack of knowledge, and they took bribes and undid reforms that he didn't even know about. Now, one of the biggest scandals that we'll face during this period is the Teapot Dome scandal. There's been this ongoing feeling since Teddy Roosevelt <clears throat> that America is running out of resources. So one of his Ohio cronies, Albert Fall, who has been placed as the Secretary of the Interior, starts to sell off land like Teapot Dome, Wyoming, that is protected. It was part of the land preserves of Teddy Roosevelt. And he did it in exchange for $400,000 in bribes. That's about $5 million today. So he's selling off 
oil-rich government lands were supposed to be set in reserve for the military, so for national security, in exchange for bribes. He moves land from Wyoming and California into his control. He sells the land to his friends who own the oil companies, and he pockets the money. All of these cabinet members, yet again, only qualification they have is that they are members of the Ohio gang. Well, Harding did create a new position, and that's Veteran Affairs. Right? We now have a whole pile of veterans from the Doughboys that fought in World War I. Well, this member of his cronies is caught selling alcohol and drugs that were meant for the World War I veterans. Harding finds out and chokes the guy. He quits, leaves the country, and then two others involved in the scandal die in mysterious circumstances, possibly by suicide, possibly by dark deeds. Worried over all the scandals, Harding decides to go on a national tour. You know, get out of Washington, D.C., press the flesh with the people. So, starting in Alaska, he does a train tour of America, despite doctor, doctor's warnings that he wasn't up for it. He wasn't a healthy man. Well, early on in the tour, in San Francisco at the Palace Hotel, he dies. And his VP, Calvin Coolidge, becomes the 28th president. He was super popular when he died in 1923. And Americans mourn for him, right? His scandals hadn't come to light yet. However, once they do, his legacy will be tarnished forever. And Coolidge continues many of Harding's policies. Silent Cow was the polar opposite to Harding in terms of personality. Quiet, humble, reserved. He focused on maintaining and broadening Harding's policies. He had pro-business stance of low taxes, high tariffs, little regulation, and he tried to run a scandal-free administration, which restored some faith in the GOP. But it did take time, because he didn't get rid of all those cabinet members immediately. So as the scandals came to light, a lot of it weighed poorly on Calvin Coolidge, since they were still members of his administration. The importance of these two presidencies is that their approach to economic policy for the government set the agenda for the laissez-faire politics of the entire decade of the Roaring Twenties. It set that economic climate that is going to lead to great prosperity in the short term, but in the long term, it will lead to economic depression and the end of the era of hands-off government. We'll see you next time on Talking History of Big Coop. Remember to subscribe and tell your friends.